Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and this is Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is, of course, the eighth day of May in the year 2023. <clears throat> and this podcast is coming to you from southwestern Colorado, where Authentic Biochemistry Podcast now, currently, that is, resides. Hi. I'm going to go right back to our lecture describing T-cell activation um, and the immunoepigenetic profiling of that system. Now, you recall that I told you that the the deletion of a lactate dehydrogenase A enzyme at the genetic level, of course, would reduce aerobic glycolysis And one of the first reasons I gave for that reduction is because the lactodehydrogenase reaction can generate pyruvate. And with lower levels of pyruvate, you're going to get a reduction in glycolysis overall. Okay. Now, this results in a decrease in interferon gamma production in activated T cells. And I told you, However, there is one possible pharmacotherapeutic role here, and that if you could inhibit, for example, the system, uh, the LDHA system in T lymphocytes, and that is you might be able to combat autoinflammatory diseases, which have a lot to do with particularly T memory cells, it turns out. I started telling you that in addition to glucose, CD8-positive memory T cells also take directly from circulation acetate as a carbon source. Uh, And the acetate from the serum then can increase the acetyl-CoA intracellularly, and that too can promote acetylation upon CD8-positive activation induced from infection. Now, in macrophages, interleukin-4 stimulation promotes glucose-driven acetyl-CoA production. And I also mentioned this, I guess, two lectures ago now. It does so by regulating the ATP citrate lyse. Okay, so there is a direct role for interleukin-4 to control ATP citrate lyse, both at transcriptional level and also at the level of activation of the enzyme. It has to do with intermediary signal transduction cascades, which I know I talked about in the past. I'm not going to cover it right now. <clears throat> what happens when you get IL-4 stimulation and you get glucose-driven acetyl-CoA production because of the ATP citrate lyase, that will ultimately result in histone acetylation increases. And when that occurs, M1 macrophages are altered or morphologically changed to M2, which, of course, are non-inflammatory. Now, conversely, M1 activation is induced by LPS stimulation. And what it does is suppress mitochondrial metabolism. At the same time, there's also a decrease in histone acetylation. So now you get the immunoepigenetic alteration of M1 versus M2 profiling in 
active infection states or in normal physiology during circulation. Now, the effect is particularly strong, this one about M1, M2, after a prolonged LPS stimulation. Now, what can happen when that occurs is LPS tolerance. It does so by limiting histone acetylation and the activation of pro-inflammatory cytokine gene transcription. So you can take this all the way back to the limitation of acetyl-CoA availability in M1 macrophages. And of course, now I'm going to bring you back to intermediary metabolism because after all, no secret, I'm a biochemist. When this happens in M1 macrophages, it's through the modulation of the glycerol phosphate shuttle and the co-inhibition of the pyruvate dehydrogenase enzyme complex. Let's recap bioenergetics, uh, shall we? Just at least the involvement of it in this particular discussion. Here we want to focus on the fact that you have to transport, the cell has to transport, cytoplasmic NADH into the mitochondria. Now, where does NADH come from in the cytoplasm? Well, one source would, of course, be the lactic dehydrogenase enzyme, but another one would be glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase. Now, that's a glycolytic enzyme. So NADH generated in the cytoplasm during glycolysis has to be transported into the mitochondria. Well and good. Now, when, it's, when that reducing equivalent is sent to the mitochondria, it can be reoxidized by the respiratory chain, you know, the electron transport chain. However, the inner mitochondrial membrane is impermeable both to NADH and the oxidized form, NAD+. Plus. <clears throat> and there are no transport mechanisms. So it's impermeable, the membrane's impermeable because of the particular phospholipid composition and sequence within that inner membrane, which we've covered before. Remember, cardiolipin, that's the major lipid in the mitochondrial membrane. Now, what does this basically then result in? causes an increase in the ratio cytoplasmic side of NAD oxidized over NADH. In fact, the NAD to NADH ratio in the cytoplasm is many times higher. How many times higher? About a thousand, ten to the third time higher than in the mitochondria, where the ratio is only at steady state around eight. Okay. So the high level for the ratio in the cytoplasm favors the glycolytic pathway because it favors the driving of glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase. Of course, that's essential for glycolysis to continue, starting from uh, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate and moving through the aldolase reaction and then ultimately dihydroxyacetone and glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate. Uh, and then ultimately, as I said, it goes around that three phosphate dehydrogenase. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the impermeability then of NADH can be overcome. How does this happen? 
because of the indirect transfer of the reducing power. Okay, the reducing equivalence, we say, in chemistry. And that happens because of shuttling of substrates. As long as you can shuttle substrates, it can be within a redox couple to cytoplasmic NAD, NADH, and mitochondrial NADH, NAD, you're able to transfer the reducing power. Now, there's a subtle thing I want to say here right off the bat. This occurs in the male esparte shuttle, where you can serve all the reducing power of cytoplasmic NADH to mitochondrial NADH because of the transamination reactions that occur between amino acids and alpha-keto acids in and out of the mitochondria because of shuttling mechanisms. The glucose-3-phosphate shuttle is different, though. This particular shuttle is quicker, so it has more rapid turnover. That's why it was first discovered. That, that, that's not why it was first discovered. That's why it functions very well in flight muscle and insects and also in birds because it's a rapid response. As long as there's plenty of glycolysis, you can run the reducing equivalents from cytoplasm to mitochondria. Now, here's the caveat. You are, the, you, I say that too often, the cell can only mediate two-thirds of the reducing power. So ultimately, the glycerol-3-phosphate shuttle will lose a third of the ATP because when the NADH is reoxidized, and we'll explain how that occurs in the intramembrane space, the outer and inner membrane of the mitochondria is what we're talking, only coupling to FAD reduction. Okay, and FAD has less of electrochemical potential, electrochemical redox potential, that can only work at two-thirds the level of NADH. Okay? All right. Now, what happens? A reaction in which NADH becomes the substrate in the cytoplasm, a transportation of the reduced substrate into the mitochondria, and then the oxidation of that reduced substrate directly in the respiratory chain. I told you there are two pathways. We're going to do the glycerol-3-phosphate. Now, here, here's how it goes. In the cytoplasm, after the aldolase reaction, you make glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate and dihydroxyacetone-phosphate. Remember, from fructose-1,6-bisphosphate. Let's talk about the gap to dihydroxyacetone-phosphate. It will react with a cytoplasmic glycerol, it's the alcohol, 3-phosphate dehydrogenase. That will take NADH and resynthesize NAD. That NAD now will be available for the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase, which is coming, which is subsequent to these reactions, okay? The other product besides NAD plus oxidized form is glycerol, the alcohol, 3-phosphate, of course, because you've reduced the ketone to the alcohol. Now, the alcohol as glycerol 3-phosphate will go into the pass, will go through the outer mitochondrial membrane because there's a coupling reaction there. There's a transport mechanism. And as it goes into the intermembranous space, dihydroxyacetone phosphate will leave the intramembrane space. Okay? 
So what happens to the glycerol-3-phosphate now is between the outer mitochondrial membrane, the OMM, and the inner mitochondrial membrane, IMM. Well, it is reacted with an enzyme, a mitochondrial enzyme, which is also a isoform of glycerol-3-phosphate dehydrogenase. It's going to resynthesize dihydroxyacetyl phosphate. So what is it doing? It's oxidizing the alcohol to the ketone. That's the dihydroxyacetyl phosphate that's going to come back out via that bivalent shuttling mechanism, right? That antiport shuttling mechanism of the outer membrane. The same time you're going to reduce FAD to FADH2. That FADH2 will then enter at the level of succinate dehydrogenase. So not the first complex, but the second complex in the respiratory electrotransport chain. And so in the end, only two-thirds of the ATP can be synthesized because of the proton pumping processing in the chemiosmotic gradient that's generated within and without the inner mitochondrial membrane to push through the F0F1 proton pumping ATPase to generate ATP. Okay. So now you got the story. So this glycerol 3-phosphate shuttle, as I said, was first well-characterized in the flight muscle of insects, particularly, as I recall, the blowfly. And it's not considered quantitatively significant in mammalian skeletal muscle. However, it's very important in the mammalian brain and in the liver and in lymphocytes and leukocytes, okay? That's because glycolysis plays a more specific and general role in those cellular environments, particularly the brain, which uh, cannot readily move lipid from uh, lipoproteins across the blood-brain barrier. So the brain is much more preoccupied with using glucose, perhaps amino acids, as a carbon source to drive ATP synthesis, but also, of course, ketone bodies like acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Not like, just those two. Acid doesn't work very well. Acetone itself doesn't. Uh, of course. Now, <clears throat> the shuttle then involves, as I just said, if you want to be stoichiometrically careful here, and we, we do in biochemistry, you have two glycerol-3-phosphodehydrogenases, one NAD-positive linked and present in the cytoplasm, the other a unique isoform of the enzyme that is FAD-linked, present on the C side, this is the cytoplasmic side, of the inner mitochondrial membrane. Okay? So now you've got that story of where this all occurs. Now, let's go back to discuss monocytes or macrophages for a moment. Why not? Now, in the environment, such as a tumor microenvironment, such as the very reactive gut lining, where there are, of course, biofilms that are active microbiome, and also because of alterations in nutrient availability, the native monocyte macrophage can be erstwhile either rendered inactive or active depending upon the stimulation of those three microenvironmental biochemical systems. 
Now, that can all be overridden by bacterial cell wall lipopolysaccharide. Okay? So here we're talking about the coordinated change in metabolism and the associated epigenetics in macrophage monocyte innate immune cells. This is occurring during the process of polarization. And this polarization of these cells, macrophages monocytes, has to do with the specific chemistry of the stimulatory signal. Now, it also can be linked, associated, and polarized because of immunological memory. Yes, that's right, even in macrophages and monocytes. I know I covered this before. So let's go through this. Let's say you have a naive macrophage. In the presence of lipopolysaccharide, what will happen metabolically is glycolysis will increase. The ratio of alpha-ketoglutarate to succinate decreases. That's going to be important in a moment. You'll see why. And overall, you'll get a decrease in oxidative phosphorylation because glycolysis is running the program here. Now, epigenetically, what happens directly is you get an increase of acetyl-CoA. And because of that, you get an increase in histone 3, lysine 27 acetylation. Histone 3, lysine 4 methylation also has increased because you increase acetylmethionine activity, which I'm going to cover in a minute here. Further epigenetic alterations in the now, the now activated macrophage because of LPS is a decrease in histone 3 lysine methylation, that's bimethylation or dimethylation, but finally a huge increase in histone 3 lysine 4 trimethylation. Okay. All right. Now, what else is going on is acetyl CoA over time, after this macrophage has been activated, acetyl CoA production will start to decline because glycolysis is going to start running down because of all the regulation at the level of reducing equivalence and the production of ATP, essentially functioning at that level of the phosphofructokinase 1 and phosphofructokinase 2 circuit. Okay. And also at the glyceraldehyde-3-phosphate dehydrogenase level. And of course, also at the pyruvate dehydrogenase versus pyruvate carboxylase. I know you're aware of all this because you listen to biochemistry. Now, the, the production of acetyl-CoA goes down. Oxidative phosphorylation is still down over time. What happens, though, to the macrophage? You start to lose because of HDAC activity, which is part of transcription factor complex, which is altering the, the quantity, quantity and quality of gene expression in the activated macrophages, subsequent to LPS. And what you're getting now is the HDAC activity starts to remove the acetate from the histone. When that happens, you get a decrease in histone 3, lysine 27, acetylated form. You also get a decrease, and that's, that occurs specifically in enhancer regions, and then 
in canonical promoter regions of genes that had just been tuned up, such as pro-inflammatory cytokines, growth factors, matrix metalloproteases, right? So now you get a retention on other enhancers of some acetate that isn't removed because those transcription factor complexes are not ornamented with HDAC enzymes. Remember the sirtuin type enzymes that will remove acetate from histones okay, in the nucleus. So you're also going to get a decrease in the methylation of lysine 9, the dimethylated form, but you're going to maintain histone 3, lysine 4 monomethylation. And that's going to be only on latent enhancer regions of certain genes in the act. Now, the aging activated macrophage. Okay. Now, that's all what happens with LPS. If you induce with IL-4, interleukin-4, which is a very potent cytokine, what will happen? The macrophage will increase acetylcholine production. It will increase rather than decrease alpha-ketoglutarate to succinate ratio, so a very active TCA uh, pathway. This will then epigenetically do the alter uh, histones in the following way. Histone 3 lysine 27 acetylation will occur. Histone 3 lysine 4 monomethylation will occur, increase that is, but histone 3 lysine 27 trimethylation will tank. So interleukin-4 works in the exact opposite way in controlling gene expression epigenetically between LPS and now the alteration of M1 to M2 macrophage occurrence. And that kind of obtainment of the alteration of pro-inflammatory to anti-inflammatory is how macrophages are controlled. Okay. Now you've got, I think, a better picture of the whole story. Now let's do a little bit more um, discussion of epigenetic marking up of metabolic intermediate availability. Okay. How does the epigenetic markup on nucleic acids and histones? play a role in metabolic intermediate availability and turnover. That's now the core of this last part of today's lecture. Let me check my time. Yeah, we, this is exactly where I want to be. Okay, here we go. The demethylation of histones and of DNA, of course, is going to be catalyzed by demethylases. Now, there's a certain demethylase I want to remind you of. It's an alpha-ketoglutarate-dependent demethylase. So you understand that TCA intermediate and also what? The transamination product of glutamate entry, right? The aspartate and glutamate, right? So when you do a transamination between glutamate and OAA, you make aspartate and alpha-ketoglutarate. Recall that? All right. That's a simple transamination reaction. Remember now, aspartate can get involved in the malleate aspartate cell. That's always functioning as well. Never forget that the cell 
never forgets to do absolutely in the correct stoichiometry every single reaction down to the well i'll say nanomolar level of specificity okay that's where the cell is always functioning uh the way that we interpret the cell the way that we can measure things is like using a stone axe and chisel to a work of art basically but we have a lot of information because Humans are clever enough to figure out a way to enhance our senses. Remember, that's what we do as biochemists. We have instrumentation which will enhance our senses so well because we can detect things down at nanomolar or even picomolar levels by using equipment such as NMR and mass spectroscopy. Right? Okay. Now... <clears throat> Several metabolites that are structurally similar to alpha-ketoglutarate can also play a role here. What's structurally similar? Now, similar, and again, I'm a, I'm a chemistry background, so I don't like using that word. But biologically, you have to use that word because there is an alteration of enzymatic activity by what normally would be considered large differences in organic chemical substrate specificity. So what are structurally similar in quotation marks, scare quotes, succinate, fumarate, and the unusual metabolite known as 2-hydroxyglutarate or 2-HG. In fact, 2-HG is a very potent competitive inhibitor of demethylation. Now, we talked about this when we were doing immunology back in 2021, okay? I did probably 50 or 60 lectures just on straightforward biochemistry of immunological systems, and that's where I remember covering this. So you'd have to go back to those early lectures to pull this out. Now, I'm, I, I've, I've edited what I did a couple of years ago, and I've enhanced it so you don't need to go back, but if you want to, please do, because I do not scrub any of my older lectures. They're all there. And by the way, they're all free. And by the way, do you really feel justified to listen to these lectures without um, any expense at all? Do you really feel justified to think that what you're learning here, it should just be absolutely free? I mean, if you do, then you don't understand bioenergetics. You don't understand thermodynamics, which is, of course, the foundation of bioenergetics. Because then if you, if you understand thermodynamics, you would know that when energy is transferred um, back and forth between energy equivalents and equivalents of mass, that there is a conservation, right? And that conservation of mass, matter, and energy, that is, means that when something is spent, something else needs to be gained. And so that is my subtle, not so subtle way of strongly suggesting that you um, honor that code by um sending some pocket change my way as your online professor
Because this work that I do, I do it because you need to understand biochemistry authentically. And um, I'm capable of doing that. Maybe not the only person, but I'm capable of doing that for sure. Um, and I don't mind doing it for free. And I don't mind doing it without advertisement. I really hate advertisement. When I listen to podcasts and they're interrupted either by the presenter doing a read uh, online uh, over the air or by some jingle sort of advertisement, uh, what I do is look for the button to push forward so I don't have to listen to it. So that's why advertisements have zero effect on me. But I also think they're annoying. And so because of that, I don't want any advertisement in my podcast. So the only way you can contribute financially to this podcast is go online and look at the website and you can see where you can contribute uh, multiple ways. Uh, and this would really benefit your professor here because spent a great deal of time doing um, authentic biochemistry. And it, I think it's no more than uh, appropriate that there should be a compensation because I, I think you're learning something from this, judging from the number of people to listen to it, that listen to it. And, you know, you don't want to be one of these um, lackluster people that um, takes something for nothing, right? You don't want to be a slacker um, that was well described in um, Back to the Future, right? You don't want to be a slacker. That movie, one of my favorite movies. Okay, look, I've spent the last minute and a half uh, begging for money, I guess. But it's okay, because I was finished with this lecture today. We're going to get right back into intermediate metabolism probably tomorrow. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry, saying bye for now.